And that I think is the best I know tip I can provide to anybody on anything, not just technology, anything. Just. Welcome to the next episode of Cloud Do You Do, the podcast that is focused on real-life benefits of cloud technologies. This podcast is delivered to you by Revolgy, and you are hosted by me, Jakub Jan Kučera, and my colleague, Daniel Čech. And we are pleased and... to welcome Idan Mašal from company Jump Cloud. So, Idan, we are happy to have you here. Any quick introduction from your side? Uh, nice meeting you and thanks for having me. Um, my name is Idan. I joined JumpCloud back in March 2022. Joined JumpCloud after being a customer of JumpCloud um, since January 2020, I think. I was there. I was before that. I was uh, for 13 years at Plus 500, uh, employee number five, which means I've been there for quite a long time. Um, I did three major roles at Plus 500, uh, Director of IT, Director of Cybersecurity, and CISO of the group. During my time there, we did uh, two IPOs, um, three or at least three merger and acquisitions, uh, built companies, startup companies across the world in different regulations. So uh, it's been a very interesting and uh, fruitful ride. Cool. Cool. Uh, I think we will get to your career later on, but maybe more about yourself right now. Um, it seems to be you have been named by your colleagues on LinkedIn as a general problem solver. What does it mean? What is this is your biggest talent for your whole life, or how you see yourself and your let's say strengths in your Actually, career? Actually, it is. It is interesting because um, I'm a pretty good troubleshooter, and the reason that I think about it as troubleshooting is I'm able to figure out what's wrong pretty quick and you know focus on that and if you know if if I'm not right in my assumption or my hypothesis I just go back and try a different route and that's not just with technology it's also with business processes it's also with compliance with legal stuff um That's probably why it's a general problem solver. But the reason that I think I'm able to do that is I'm thinking more inside the box rather than outside the box. So basically, I'm trying to solve problems and you know finding creating uh, creative ideas using what I have in place right now instead of trying to find something new to maybe help me solve the problem. So it's a, it's an approach that's uh quite different i've been doing that in entire my, my entire life that's basically my thought that way i think nice uh that's quite interesting i was on, only the one who is thinking out of the box and there is also a lot of negatives regarding that but uh, not about me uh general uh, problem solver and how how it's about the people let's say you said about the technologies processes you are able to say, uh, you know solve the problems quite quickly how about um, some personal stuff because you are also let's say the leader of a team and and the, in the leadership role so how applies this to to also leadership so 
I think it's best to, to talk about that based on my experience at Plus 500 leading a team. Um, basically, you know, there's a, it's about making our, us as a team just being better. So the, the, the call it the personal contract between me and my teams is we are doing this together and there's nothing that you can say that it's a mistake and nothing is and, and the answer i don't know is a good answer because that's what engages us to learn more and and figure it out so i'll be teaching you mentoring you and helping you all the way and until you can take ownership of a specific domain right but when you the only expectation that i have is just ask questions so if there's something that you don't know just come say i don't know how to solve this and we'll solve it together and the reason this is the, the personal contract is because there's even a, a more important one. After working together, there's two goals that need to happen. One is you are better, and the second one is I'm better. So basically, we are improving ourselves just by working together as a team. And that's why questions are very important, because that's where we drive knowledge, right? That's what makes us research. Really nice, really nice. Oh, uh, good idea. Well, you've mentioned especially cooperation in you know, plus 500. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting journey of, of whole company and your career in that company. Uh, can you, uh, you know, guide us through it? Because yeah. especially beginnings were quite interesting. One. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting ride. So, I finished my studies at the Technion in Israel, um, which is, uh, if you're looking at an equivalent, it's like Israel's MIT. Um, I studied uh, an engineering degree and industrial engineering and management, and I focused in uh, information systems. And before that, I worked as a student in a company called Zoran, CSR. Um, and when I graduated, I went to working for a startup, Plus 500. So. It started by in being interviewed in an apartment, right? That's it was an apartment <laughs> with uh, five founders, six founders, and I got a job, and it was like it wasn't really defined. Um, IT, security, wh whatever. Everybody's doing everything, right? Um, and I inherited. Uh, uh, SBS 2003 server that ran Exchange. Uh, two servers, Dell servers running in Rackspace uh, on-prem, uh, like co-location there. Uh, one of them was running all the instances of the application. The other one was running SQL and instances of the application. And there was like this small, tiny firewall. And that's it. And everything was, was a mess. And again, it's a startup where you don't didn't have any cloud there, right? Back 2009, you had AWS, which was just starting. GCP didn't really exist. Azure didn't exist. Um, moving to Google Workspace was, you know, a desire, but we can buy it. And I think the first, the first thing that I did at Plus 500 was purchase a. Uh, like uh, hire or deploy a Linux server, a physical Linux server, and on top of that, put VMware Server version two, which was open source, in order to start, you know, 
using VMs in production, proving that concept. And then we, we built a, a very uh, resilient platform running on VMware. And uh, Plus500 didn't say that as a .NET shop. So back then, it was just Windows 2008, Windows 2008 R2, Windows 2012, 2012 R2, and all that dinosaur which is still a legitimate technology for today. Um, and, and that was that was interesting. Then one day after we built that and you know we had a lot of servers and, and they were running uh, lean VMs with memory utilization and all that stuff, we did the monitoring. Um, uh, our, our CTO, which was a, um, a co-founder and he was also my, my boss, he said, I want a button. And I asked him, what button do you want? And he was like, I want a button that when I click it, it's going to take the code from subversion and or SVN, compile it, test it, build it, package it, deploy it to a QA environment, a test environment, then production environment. And I want it to be automatic. And I was like, what? <laughs> because he basically described a pipeline and DevOps, where back in 2009, DevOps was not a word. Yeah, it's really like applying the cloud solutions in the moment there was no cloud. Uh, but maybe also quite interesting for me is, you know, how this technology on the background of the business actually helps, uh, you know, uh, improve the business outcomes in the company so can you give us some examples yeah i will i will so so and it's a, it's a very important um question because we were actually releasing new versions of our platform um weekly every sunday so every sunday the entire production environment needs to be replaced entire services and we believed in being very lean in, in, in manpower. So we had to build these automations. And like a nightly build that would build and make sure that QA environment is not broken because we were doing sprints in, in less than a in less than a week. So deploy on one on Sunday, troubleshoot on Monday if something can breaks on Sunday. And there's a trading platform that runs on based on stock market. You don't have you can't afford downtime. Um, and you need to stress it and make sure that everything is right. And we had to build our own stressing tools. So being able to agile, um, deploy new instances, new servers um, in a declarative way. You know, today you have Terraform, but I built something I think that is not doesn't fall from Terraform um, because it's a it was an XML file, and deliberately I chose XML because it was typed, and I had a declaration of my servers. And declaration of my instances and the matching of which instance runs on which server and what are the compiling uh, parameters and what and what configuration had every instance in order to run in a multi-instance way behind a load balancer and what tasks I need to do on the database to back it up before and after and and incorporate Java and incorporate uh, .NET and and some other tools being cross-platform that's something I, I literally developed and built. Um, and it runs till this date because that's that's what releases the the 500 environment. 
So it sounds like uh, cloud is coming to uh, plus 500. Can you describe when it actually happened, when you realize that uh, it's time to start uh, using some cloud technologies? And actually, what was the situation of the cloud market, if you remember? So yeah, I do remember. Um, and it, it's very interesting because I'll take cloud and I'll, I'll just separate it to various aspects of it. So. Back in the day, when you said cloud, people thought, oh, VMware. No, that's not cloud. <laughs> and for me, cloud is SaaS, right? Even GCP is, is something as a SaaS, right? And yeah. as I develop on it, that's fine. But it's, it's kind of a SaaS. So the first move for cloud was in 2012 when we finally were able to buy Google Workspace, which was called G Suite back then. I think and, it was Google Apps. Google yeah, it was, Apps. Yeah, it was Google Apps. Yeah. Was next. yeah, it was Google Apps. And the way we did it, we had so many domains. I had to, back then, there was some limitation with Google Apps on subdomains and whatever. And then from a compliance requirement, I was forced to have a dedicated Google Apps account for each subsidiary. And that was that's that was the beginning of the difficulties, right? Um, so we migrated um, the plus 500 domain and all the people there. And I wanted to do that when we were 10. I had to do it when we were 50. And the upload was four megabits. That was the speeds back then, right? It's not, it's not like it is today. It was a fiber cable with four megabits. Um, and that was like fast. I'm and glad you mentioned that because today we have uh, some uh, different situations with our customers and they are saying like, why is this not possible? And I'm like, guys, this is a really small issue. Yeah. <laughs> there were really big issues three years ago, two years ago, and even one year ago. And this is a really small thing. Move on. It will be solved in one year. It's going to yeah. be great. So, so the way we tackled this, we, we used um, Google's uh, Outlook exporter from the client side it's itself instead of using um, Exchange connector because Exchange wasn't really saving all the data. There was archives, so we used that. And also, that's that allowed me to do it scalable because people had laptops, so they did it from their homes instead of just sharing the four megabits on the office. <laughs> um, it took a couple of weeks, more than a couple of weeks, but we, that, was a, that was a perfect migration. And oh, that was the first SAS, right? Um, that was for not, um, let's call it, not as a technology for the platform itself, because we did use some SMS services and stuff like that. Um, then we added Zendesk um, for customer support. Um, and at, you know after that, we added some more SaaS vendors. But we started talking about, are we going to use cloud? Or are we going to invest in our own cloud infrastructure, um, the VMware cloud? Then you know there were requirements for having a DR site and stuff that, back when you're developing on Windows, uh, is, is very hard. Um, it's not like a Docker container that's stateless and then you can push it and deploy it anywhere you want. It's a, it's a Windows machine that you need to care about. Um, and we debated, and I'll touch base on that in a, in a few seconds, but just back on the SaaS, 
I was so not willing to do anything on-prem, really. Uh, and, you know, when people asked me that, I was like, I had to send emails, right? Marketing emails from Plus 500. What's the easy way? Just install some SMTP servers and start sending away, right? And I said, no, I'm not doing that because I'm not a mailman, right? It's not my core business to sending emails. So I want to use a service. And that's where we used SendGrid when it, before they were even purchased. We had dedicated IPs, integration, stuff like that. We're one of the first SendGrid customers that send a lot of mails, like I think more than 30 million a month. And we had to improve our reputation and you know warm the IPs and all that stuff. It was a very interesting, a very interesting uh, um, ride. And then you know you start understanding about protocols like DMARC and domain keys and all that stuff and spam and compliance. And again, remember, I'm not I'm doing SaaS, so I'm not going to process all these emails. So I had a found a different platform, DMartian, from the the guy that actually wrote. Uh, lead, led the, the, the specification, uh, his name is Tim. And he built a platform that ingested that. So I was ingesting that data and getting the insights from him. And I think that was 2014, maybe. Um, and then I had to solve some antivirus issues, right? Um, and I wanted an antivirus that can run in a SaaS model. The only one I found, because everybody back then, you needed a server and authentication and uh, signatures and all that stuff. And the only thing I found was a semantic.cloud offering that they purchased some company that allowed you to put a deploy an agent that then deployed the actual antivirus, maintained this signatures, and I had a cloud console for doing that. And the only reason I, per I, I decided using that was because it was SaaS. So I was really uh, early adopter of all the SaaS model. And after that, we went to CrowdStrike. But at the same time, we had the internal debates on what are we doing in order to use cloud for our own platform, right? That's the question you asked me. And we decided that we're going to be using our technology that needs no neighbor, no, that needs no noisy neighbors, right? There's the noisy neighbor problem. Because we're a transactional stock market, we're a bank, right? Plus 500 was a, is a bank. You can think about it this way. So you don't need noisy neighbors. So we're going to invest in the core technology, but we would burst out to the cloud to use the cloud where the cloud shines. Data processing, for example, sending the emails, doing the notifications, all the heavy, uh, heavy things that drive traffic to the business they are being used in the cloud, right? Because otherwise, I need to invest in a lot of technology, but that's not my core technology. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one of the important things about this whole change is maybe this is even a transformation. It's not just uh, changing from one to another, but how people or employees of Plus 500 reacted to this change. Did they so, like it? Did they were because we see that uh, employees of our customers are sometimes afraid of this change. Like, what happens when I'm offline? Where your employees are afraid? No, actually. So we were a very young company. Um, founders were like three, four years 
bigger than me. I'm 41. So I joined when I was 30 or 29, I think. And the thing is, I decided from the beginning that every Starbucks or every coffee shop or restaurant or whatever is going to be a plus 500 office. That was the decision. That was the strategy. So we were not um, working remotely was not a being something. It wasn't strange. We did have offices. But the reason I thought about it was I know we're expanding to multiple offices. And the last thing I want is connecting VPNs between offices and having a hub, whatever. So I said, OK, there's an office in the UK. It has 50 people. OK, cool. It's a Starbucks. They can work from it. I don't want any critical infrastructure. I need a Wi-Fi. I need a public IP. Or if there's no public IP, a VPN connection. So we were leveraging SSL VPN and other tools from the beginning and, and you know specifically crafted NAT rules to route people from specific IPs we know to whitelist and other uh, services we needed. And so there wasn't really an adoption curve. It was just it was just comfortable. Also adopting you know uh, next gen tools like CrowdStrike allowed me to give every person in the company the ability to watch Netflix if they want. And I can care less because why just block the internet if I can know what's happening with the endpoint, right? And having next-gen firewalls and knowing the entire funnel of a request. So we were taking a very different approach on, yeah, I need to give a person a computer. And yeah, he needs to interact with a, a, a system and another system. And, and that's it. Basically, we were trying to create this holistic experience and use what we wanted to drive our business forward instead of someone telling us what we need to do, which wasn't in alignment with our own goals. Yeah, so this is the great example when technology is, you know, putting you in a great position, you know, not only towards the customers, but also towards the employee experience. Just remind me, what year it was that? That was, um, so, 2009. Okay. The first so... thing that I did was when I joined is see that we were using PPTP on a FortiGate firewall 60B. And I got sick and I couldn't log into the PPTP. So I decided to research how to fix the SSL VPN. And I did fix it. And then we started using SSL VPN instead of the Windows PPTP, which is not good. And uh, then I learned how to use sophisticated nets. And I was never a FortiGate engineer or something. I just inherited all that equipment. And I had to, to actually learn it. And um, we had VPNs in production, which basically everybody that could log in would be everything. And uh, I decided that I need to have ACLs on the Cisco's in production. And we created an entire ACL and user groups and stuff like that in a very sophisticated way, but every person that needed access to a specific service would receive that instead of receive something that's more than what they need. So we were locked tight from the beginning. So let's say uh, you need access to uh, SAP Business One and uh, another internal tool. There would be a group. You would be a member of that group. And when you log into the VPN, you'll have a split tunnel that only grants you access to that specific group. Now, 
that today people is doing like oh yeah that's that makes sense that was 2009 yeah actually that was my point because in these days it doesn't seem like uh that awesome but in 2009 i believe people were surprised coming to a, a bank company as you called it and you will tell them okay I uh, forgot about the way you were working in these days. Right now, you can take your computer, laptop, you can go to the Starbucks, and you will have ac access to all the resources you need. Yeah. In and so. and um, I think the magic from the network security perspective, you know, um, was being able to work with um, with Rackspace and their amazing, you know, network security teams and being able to execute what i was actually wanting because we were always on the bleeding for the uh bleeding edge of the firmware right so we were always bleeding edge on cisco firmware and uh, that means a lot of patching a lot of none no no ability to test right <laughs> but you know there's a feature oh yeah i need this okay we need to upgrade and and and, and it was it was a it was a great ride um then we added load balancers and you know ssl termination and uh, that was that was it was epic and and then what we did was actually introduce the rackspace public cloud back then there was something like that that was built on um i forgot the name of the technology um openstack remember it was openstack um and it was actually connected as a vlan to our core, to our production environment in, in Rackspace. So basically the cloud was cloud computing and I was receiving all the subnets to my local firewall, which was running the VMware state. And I had, from a security perspective, my firewall was managing it. So it was another VLAN. So I actually had a public cloud as a VLAN with all its resources. Um, in 2017, I think, or 18, we added GCP as a vlan to the firewalls so that required us and we had to do this because um we moved some services that were uh, we didn't want to build them cloud native from the beginning so in order for us to be able to use them in a cloud environment we had it to have our own vpc connectivity over our own lines that are encrypted from one firewall to the vpc and you know scaling this in a different way but once the data was being in the cloud or processed in the cloud, then it enabled us to burst into other VPCs and other projects to run, you know, notification services and stuff like that, that would take away the power um, from what we needed to invest on-prem. The challenge here was convincing our engineers that if it's in the cloud and if it's in Rackspace and there's two milliseconds away, that's a lot because on a local network it's less than one millisecond and over a, a, a two millisecond line even if it's the best fiber it's it becomes a lot when it stacks up and that's when we had to shift away some some of the services to be processed in the cloud and storing it in the cloud and moving it away and that was the challenge with the cloud now at the same time we had another data center that was replicating the actual core environment which is the environment that provides the business and that can be cloudified because it needs to run on the same power the same subnet same everything so we were 
on-prem, cloud, SaaS, hybrid, very, very complex environment. And we had very small teams to, to support all of that. Let's maybe discuss a little bit about the uh, Jump Cloud also, which is your current employer. So we've been discussing all, let's say, SaaS and cloud solutions, let's say from 2010, now it's 2022, your yeah. current employer is, uh, is Jump Cloud. Yeah. So how this fits to the journey? What is your next horizon from your point of view in your career, but also on the markets with cloud and SaaS applications? So. You didn't ask me, and I'll share, but th this is your question. I uh, said there was a lot of friction, pains, and I didn't say that there's a lot of fric friction and pains in, in this scenario. I implied it when I said multiple Google Workspace accounts, right? Um, but there was a lot of pain there, right? Because um, I have a computer, which can be Windows, Mac OS, or Linux. I have a Google Workspace account, which can be either plus500.com or COUK or whatever other domain. I have a resource in VPN. I have a resource in VPN there. I have Zend Zendesk. You understand, everything is becoming fragmented. And, and, and like it's cool, but it's very hard. Um, and I remember 2012, after moving to Google Workspace, saying like, why can't I manage my computers from Google Google Apps? Like, why? Install an agent. Let me put the username there and do some policies. That's what I wanted. Actually started developing that myself for internal purpose usage at Plus 500, understanding that this is not going to be uh, a good use of my time. And at that point, I decided that I'm not going to invest in any OS-specific solutions. I was not going to invest. And, and the reason was we were developing on Mac OS for iPhones. We were developing on Windows. We were testing on Linux. So I can't invest. And I don't want more fragments. And I was trying to research the market. If something like this existed, I didn't even know what to query Google. I didn't even know what to write in Google, right? And one day, I think 2014, I I stumble upon something called Jump Cloud, and it wasn't what I wanted. It was a more <laughs> DevOps-centric solution. Okay, so I had a reminder every 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 quarter to search the market. It took me a couple minutes, right? And then JumpCloud came back again on the radar in 2016, and it was different. And I remember the name, but it was totally different. And we just didn't have time trying it. But I did you know, play around with it with some demo accounts that are on fake Gmails and stuff like that. So nobody from sales contacts me. Um, but um, I had a pain to solve, and that pain was I want people to use their Google password to log into everything. Makes sense. I don't, and I don't want an IDP because I want it for everything. Now, when I'm saying the Google password, I'm not saying I need the Google password. I'm saying 
that's the only password that they know. And I don't mind controlling that password and tricking, you know, the thought process of my employees to say, yeah, that's what JumpCloud does. So actual, when we did the, the POC, uh, it wasn't really a POC. I have a FortiGate at home. Um, so I was testing it myself with a test account. The driver for this was, I want it for the radius for VPN. Because I was like, I'm making an assumption. There's an agent installed. There's policies. But okay, I'm going to test it later. I wanted for VPN, and I wanted multi-factor authentication. That's what I wanted. And I did not want to pay FortiGate, FortiNet, for the Forti tokens. It was just too expensive. And I was able to make that work. So you know, integrating all the Google Workspace accounts, importing the users, pushing that to Radius, to FortiGate, looking at uh, Radius. Um, so I was like, okay, that's Wi-Fi, that's captive portals, that's SSL VPN, that's policies. Okay, I don't need any more IPs or MAC addresses. I know who the human is. That's brilliant. And we installed it on on devices on Windows. And I was lucky not to onboard um, users to our Active Directory. For some reason, I decided. Uh, to make a crazy decision back then in 2009 that users will be local on devices, but devices will be bound to Active Directory that we had on-prem just so it's easy to push some policies on the machine level. Fast forwarding 10 years, that was probably the best decision I ever made because installing JumpCloud was very easy. Take the user off of the domain, install JumpCloud, bind them. Now, the second decision I made was the naming convention, I enforced the naming convention. First name, dot, last name. That's it. And that played a big role because when we onboarded JumpCloud as customers, um, it didn't have the local system uh, name that you can use. So I had to rename users, and I didn't want to do that. So luckily, it didn't really. Only the, new, the, only the oldest employees were, were doing that. So the way that I, I, I showed JumpCloud the value was to the employees is, you will be onboarded. You'll choose a password. Choose your Google password. And now you can log into your computer using that password. If you change that password here, it's going to change in Google. That's going to be your password for the VPN. You don't need to remember any more passwords. You're going to have multi-factor authentication. Back then, it was only TOTP, but that was good enough. And that's why I wanted to, you know, that's why I actually joined JumpCloud which is for me a crazy career change, being a CISO, battling hackers, doing web application firewalls, DevOps, applications, D databases, all that stuff, um, just because it fits so nicely. And it's like the, the it's like a blanket you can put on things and, or not a blanket, you know, the Legos and there's the all the cubes and there's these Lego surfaces where you can put many cubes on them and create, you know, a tower. That's the, that's the surface. It helps you connect all the cubes that you that you have. And today, in the modern world, the modern cloud native world, where people start companies and are like, yeah, I'm going to use Google Workspace, and I'm going to do it on GCP, and I'm going to use containers, and I'm going to use Kubernetes, and I'm going to use uh, MongoDB Atlas, and I'm going to use this, 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 and that. That's the Lego world. Something needs to connect everything. It's uh, funny how everything has changed in those last two or three years since pandemic arrived that this became normal. But three or four years ago, 
when we came to the company and we said, you know, you don't even need a laptop. You just need a browser. Yep. Use the Chrome OS, use SaaS applications, and people were like, but I need my Active Directory. So yep. I was like, okay, let's make a list of things where you actually really use Active Directory. And they're like, we need file server. No, you don't need file server. We need to log in to uh, our computers. No, you don't. And people have started realizing that. And it was during pan pandemic, everything has really started. Uh, people or companies were coming to us and asking for a help how to achieve this. But before pandemic, it wasn't possible. So I'm glad there were companies who were successful achieving that before the pandemic. It, it's, it's actually a thought process. I'll explain it. So I was, you said the pandemic. So we signed the contract January 2020. My goal was being done with onboarding the first 150 employees with JumpCloud. Like, at the worst case scenario, end of Q1 2020. We all know what happened Q1 2020. Yeah. I started rolling out JumpCloud. I was, there was no pandemic. During the rollout, there was a pandemic. So now I'm supposed to change the way people log into their devices use their applications while there is a global quarantine and troubleshooting is insane and i can't roll back i must move forward i think that's where i have lost most of my hair just kidding or got white <laughs> um because if we get this wrong we are locking out humans while still paying their salaries. So they can't work and they get paid. That's not a desirable outcome. So we planned this and part of the planning was, okay, we have this active directory. What does it do? Do I need to integrate to it or do I move away from it? Do I kill it or do I just silo it? And after doing that assessment, we just like yeah active directory is doing staging environment and only a couple of developers let's say 10 not couple 10 developers use it uh the other the guys that have mac don't use it so that's not a problem so i'm not going to bother even integrating to it i'm just going to move users away from it and then i'm just going to see that how tiny it became which makes it a non-issue i'm just going to keep it until it dies or not dies but i'm not going to bother using the 10 15 identities that are on there to uh, integrate with 450 500 600 identities that we had other elsewhere right so the thought process was okay what applications or what services or what am i doing with that active directory that affects my entire company and when you ask yourself that and being honest it was nothing and that actually helped us during the pandemic because people were we didn't need to train people on how to work remote they knew how to work remote because that was the dna of the company from 2009 we had offices but people could work anytime any day from anywhere you know laptops were expensive back in 2009 we purchased laptops and um the the a laptop for a, a plus 500 employee regardless of 
his or hers rank or status should not weigh more than one kilogram if it's not a MacBook. So everybody were getting these lean machines and they were full-blown i7s um, just because I didn't want to bother with performance and troubleshooting on that. It's just like how to use the time. So the pandemic did teach us a lot of things. It taught us how to work remotely and it taught us how to work fast. And I think the one of the best things that it taught us was focus on what where you can bring the most value. And I think that is resonating with what I said in the beginning. I need to send emails. Am I a mailman? Do I want to manage exchange? Right? Yeah. If you're taking backups, for example, do I need a file server, big one for Acronis? Or can I use the Acronis cloud to back up to the cloud if when I have an internet connectivity? But remember, what drives all this is the internet that made the bandwidth be faster. Because back in 2009, that was four megabits. I had tapes. <laughs> OK. So wait, I didn't answer one thing. And I think yeah. it, I need to make it clear. The When I joined JumpCloud, it's because of the mission. It's because of you know helping organizations on all sides just realize what can be done, right? Because it's sometimes we're too focused on what we need to add more in order to solve something instead of how we can use what we currently have. And that's the inside the box thing to solve problems. Or maybe we don't really have problems. For example, you buy a company that has Microsoft 365 and you're a Google Workspace. Do you want to migrate them to Google Workspace, or can they still keep using on 365? But you will want to move them to Google Workspace. But now the question is, when? Do I do it now, or do I do it down the line after we integrate it, and there's trust in the organization, and everybody's happy, and now we move them to Google Workspace and train them accordingly? It's about priorities, right? So that's what we can achieve by having a solution such as this. So we are super happy we can solve both because we are uh, you know, actually doing migrations of Google Workspace quite often, but partnering Jump Cloud right now too. So game part, Idan. Well, actually, this is typical part of our podcast that's explaining the technology to me as I am five-year-old child. OK. We have some topics here. So, or you can also try to explain to my mother. It seems to be quite similar <laughs> understanding of the technology. But how do we, you would explain directory services? Directory services. So I'd say it's like a phone book, OK? Um, what does that mean? We have names. Names represents people. And the phone number is, represents how do we reach them, OK? But a directory service does something in addition. It says, what does that person is allowed to do? Because it allows you to do some authentication based on the directory server. So let's say in a phone book, if Idan lives in Haifa, I'll have an address. I know I live there. So in the application, I can say, if you are living in Haifa, you can see the, the flag or the, uh, the logo of the city. 
A directory service allows us to use a list of people in applications. Now, that is one of the most critical places we have because if we didn't have a phone book, how do we call each other? How do we reach each other? So that's why directory services are important. And most companies that have Google Workspace, I argue that Google Workspace is their directory service because every person has an email, but not every person has a Zendesk account, or not every person has an Active Directory account. Not every person has something else, right? Because we need to communicate over email. So that's why a directory service in the new word, world is a cloud directory. Make sense? Yep. One more topic regarding this. I think you've tackled this a little bit. So can you explain to me a little bit more, you know, uh, the multi-factor authentication and also maybe what happens if I'm not authorized to access something? Multi-factor authentication is arguably one of the safest ways, but also uh, experience ways, user experience that are not really good. Um, so let's say you give Daniel your phone, your uh, username and password. And Daniel now logs into your email or to a specific application. Is that enough? Is that enough mm -hmm. to prove that JJ, you logged in? Daniel just logged in. So the point now is how do we use multi-factor authentication? So there's another device, that's the factor, that provides another token or another means of authenticating that you are you. So sometimes you would use SMS because they're relying that you didn't give him the phone. Sometimes they use a TOTP application that's going to generate codes every 30 seconds or 15 seconds. Sometimes it's going to be using a YubiKey, a FIDO device, but you still can give Daniel the, the device, right? And sometimes you would say, I'll use push. Gmail does it very nicely in the Gmail app. You use push. But again, if you gave him the device, your mobile device, you would say, yeah, I have biometrics on it, right? So he knows the username, he knows the password. He can't unlock the device. But I argue, but if you gave him the device unlocked, he would still be able to log in, right? And that's what multi-factor is for you. It's proving that who is using the username and password is who it is, who he or she is. Thank you. Nice one. Nice one. Maybe one more topic, the last one, which came to my mind. Maybe even Daniel can try to explain uh, or add some comments. And that's the zero trust concept. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. 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 Zero trust. It's it's a huge topic. Everybody does zero trust in a different way. Um, I just showed you in my previous answer with multi-factor authentication that if you give Daniel and uh, your username and password and also your key or token, there is trust because we trust the multi-factor of the device, right? So zero trust means we want to verify everything. We don't want to trust anything. Now, 
anything, what is it? So we need to focus. I like to focus on um, devices and humans using devices because eventually someone needs to use something. I'm not focusing on zero trust between containers um, because they're containers. I'm focusing on humans. And let's say I'll give you an example. You have a MacBook and a Windows laptop, and you need to access Salesforce. Okay. Who said? And I get and, and I give you these these laptops from work, and they're uninstalled on them. There's CrowdStrike or Sentinel One or Selfless or any other security, and there's policies enabled and DLP and whatever you need. Everything is installed. The CISO invested tons of money on it, and now you need to log into Salesforce. Okay, cool. Now you're at home, and your laptop is heavy, and you don't really want to carry it, and your son has a 17-inch laptop for gaming, and you love working on it, so you just use it and log into Salesforce. Uh, my question is, why did you invest all that money in, in CrowdStrike and stuff if you allow access to that resource from a device that's not managed? Now, zero trust means I will verify that you are using a device that's managed by the company or i will verify you're using the you're accessing the service from uh, ip that i allow okay an office or i will verify that you're allowed to access this from a country okay ip to location the reverse lookup or you will have access from an encrypted device that's or i will have access from MFA, where the MFA have biometrics enabled, so even if you pass Daniel your phone unlocked and you walk away, when the push notification comes, you will need to put a face, and that's you know verifying. So the way I look at it is, I don't want to put obstacles because it makes too much of a hard experience, but we need to be able to decide what are the crown jewels and where we want to be able to verify that they're being accessed by the end devices and end humans and users um, in a way that is in compliant with the way that we do security in our organization. That's, that's how I, I explain zero trust. It's not the five-year-old uh, explanation, but I think it's, it's not too advanced. Agree, agree. Everyone is now talking about that. Daniel, anything add from your side? No, I, I just think that from my point of view, zero trust might be a little bit buzzword. Some companies have already implemented this approach in their company and they're reaching us and saying, hey guys, it's pandemic. There's a lot of hackers around. We need to implement zero trust. And then we go through their settings of IDP and I'm like, guys, but you already have it. You don't uh, rely on the firewall only. You have some. Uh, you check if the user is authorized to access those resources. So you have implemented zero trust. So first, people should check their uh, environment, check what it really means to have zero trust implemented, 
and then they should focus on not just the technology they want to implement. They should see, uh, check in their environment what are the risks. Do we have some uh, financial data on Google Drive, for example? Zero trust is not an answer. DLP is an answer in this case. So yeah. they should do the risk assessment first and then spend time on implementing uh, such a security features and not just doing what is uh, currently. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the, there are difficulties implementing zero trust because if you're looking at multiple vendors, one thing about zero trust is you want to ingest all that data and put it in a SIM, right? Um, and ingesting it from one IDP and one device management solution and your firewall and others, they're not standardized in a way that you can make clear sense of it. And that's where, you know, I think of platforms that manage the entire domain and then even able to report on what's happening that's like that's the purest form of zero trust because i'm not trusting anything so if the platform is also managing the devices and managing the identities of the devices and managing the the cloud directories such as google workspace and managing single sign-on and then able to report on what the admin did and why they did it right why did you click on show encryption key and tie the authentication to it and who accessed from where, that's, you know, complementing zero trust because sometimes a compensating control allows you to not mitigate something. Like, don't block it. I want to know you logged in. I will allow it. But having that intelligence is better than blocking because if I'm blocking you, you'll probably, and you're a, you're a bad actor, you're a bad actor employee, uh, an insider threat, you will find a way of moving away, right? That's your goal. But if it's easy and we have eyes, I don't trust anything. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Actually, it's funny that some companies are really strict about security. And then we go to their secretary, for example. I'm like, how do you share those data? I cannot share it, so I just take a photo to my WhatsApp and send it. Uh, to KT via WhatsApp yeah. or V-transfer yeah. and stuff like that. So I always say it's better to have it under control with your own systems, even though it shouldn't be shared, yeah. than, having, than letting users or forcing users, you are actually forcing them to use the shadow IT resources. Exactly. So um, you know, I had the same uh, fear. Uh, during the pandemic, and I decided on using our internal resources. You know, we had back office applications that we owned, developed, and I decided that I want to log them just to see who is acting differently. Luckily, nothing happened, but it was a, from a performance perspective. But think about it: if someone views a lot of accounts and he's the only or she's the only person in the team that does it, it's an anomaly. You want to know. You want to ask yeah. questions. Maybe they're doing something very good, and the others are not. Maybe it's not an insider threat. Why? Why? Why do we need to always come suspiciously, right? So it's a performance thing. But 
it's we need to understand that zero trust it's like um when i was back in 2009 people were talking about big data right that was the buzzword back then <laughs> and now we have the buzzword of ai okay what's ai i i just finished my uh, mba in artificial intelligence and big data okay artificial intelligence is is a buzzword machine learning is a technology you know deep learning all that stuff so what's ai same thing what is zero trust we need to focus on what pillars of zero trust we want to solve and that's the key on any buzzword big data is it a lot of storage is it a lot of querying is it a lot of uh, uh places in the world is it what's what are you trying to solve because you can do sql server with big data you can do that nobody said biz sql server dies in two terabytes it can do much more that's true as we just heard idan uh, the world is changing with buzzwords also quite quickly so question is you know where to get inspired about the new topics and new knowledge and stuff like that can you advise to us and our listeners something which is you know good for you um i like to challenge things so i i for example use flipboard um so it's it's kind of interesting i was uh when i was young like very i was using a lot of rss reader tools i remember a website called netvibes that i really liked and it's not that anymore. Um, and then at one point I discovered an app called Zite, Z-I-T-E, that had this amazing engine to show me news and subjects I want. Um, and it was like telepathy. It was like, it was insane. It died and it was purchased by Flipboard. It's not the same. I think the Zite engine was superior, but I use Flipboard ever since. And it's pretty much the way that I define what I like, and then it learns me a little bit, and it is pretty valuable on the way that it provides me the, the, the information. I search a lot, and I have a very specific way on how to search. Um, and I'm just being very curious and, and critical on things on with my own mind, right? So I read something. And like, okay, how do they do that? And then I just start branching on research. That's the way I do it. And I'm not saying, you know, who said a best practice is a best practice? Always ask that. Okay, best practice, by who? What does it mean? Does it fit me? Does it fit them? Who said all Docker needs Kubernetes? Who said that? There's also Nomad, right? And there's others and there's Rancher and stuff like that. Who said? Who said I need to be running on Docker? Well, there's, there's jail from the ages before I was born. So, you know, who said that? Uh, who said PowerShell core is not a good language to write a script in? Who said Go is better? Who said uh, Python is better than Go? Who said it? Like, what's the best practice? I like to challenge that because what that means to me is I will then get to my best practice, either by following that best practice, either by inspiring myself and building something new out of two best practices and that i think is the best i don't know, tip i can provide to anybody on anything not just technology anything just challenge things and do it your own way your own flavor everybody has intelligence we're all smart people and we all have an opinion so why not inspire ourselves by challenging what people claim is a best practice or a 
buzzword like zero trust. So it goes the same way. Okay, what's zero trust? People go Wikipedia, read this. Ah, it's, it's vague. I don't understand. And then you start digging deeper and deeper and understanding what zero trust, finding yourself away from all the buzzwords from Google and the vendors and all the articles, and then trying to ask yourself, what am I trying to solve? Is I'm, or maybe I didn't know I have that problem. And that's where things are really cool because, oh, I heard zero trust. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. I need to solve this. And then you need to start a new organization, getting funded, all that stuff, explaining why you need to tackle that, and then move with the choices you make to solve the problems you have in your organization because every organization is not the same, it's different. For example, you take a company, you make it cloud native, Kubernetes, Docker, Google Workspace, you have this time, you have this uh, blueprint of a company that's a cloud native. And I'm telling you, they will all have different problems. I have to agree with that uh, because I always go to companies and uh, they are asking us for security audits, for example. So I always say, okay, there is the checklist from Google. We can go through it. And they're like, okay, so uh, it tells me that I should turn on this feature. Okay, that would be the best practice from Google. But I know that in the fa uh, last five companies, which are in the same industry as you are, they didn't turn it on for those reasons. So people just don't do best practices. Think about it first, find reasoning behind, and do your own research before you do something because someone told you to do that. You reminded me on something. Wow. Google Workspace, I think it was 2017. They started with uh, MDM, not for uh, laptops, but for Android and iOS devices. And I don't know why, I went in the morning to the admin console and I had this banner. Enable MDM now. I did not <laughs> want to enable that. I clicked the X sign to make that go away. Either it was too early or somebody tricked me, I don't know. But I was at the gym afterwards, and I my phone did not stop ringing. I I'm on I'm on, I'm on iPhone, and and back then it only worked on Android. It kicked away everybody from Google Workspace and did not uh, from a uh, Google Workspace accounts and did not allow them to log into the uh, office Wi-Fi. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and I didn't even understand that I clicked a button, and that was like Google advertising that you should do mobile device management. I didn't want to do this. So I called Google support, and they explained to me where that link is inside the console because I never saw it before. And I disabled that. Luckily, that propagation was quick because people were back. So like you said about the configuration, not everything that someone puts, that's what you want because there's so many side effects and you can't even think about it. And there's no testing. It was an org level configuration, not even a OU that you could test. Like enable MDM, blah, blah, blah for your organization. X, I don't want it. Enabled. <laughs> and what is Google really great at? They say, if you untick this option, you will turn it on. <laughs> so um, sometimes it might be a little, uh, really tricky that if you tick something, it actually uh, turn it off, if you yep. know what I mean. Yeah, I get so. it.
but I learned I learned from them that uh, sometimes it's better not touching even the widget because you don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think this story is actually explaining uh, quite nicely when you need experienced partners and uh, engineers to guide you through the technologies. So uh, we are super uh, lucky that we have one of them on our podcast. So Idan, thanks a lot for joining. Happy to listen to your stories and experience. Thank you for inviting me. Perfect. Thanks a lot. So, dear listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on the Revology podcast, Club We Do. We are a remote first company serving around the globe uh, our customers regarding GCP, AWS, Google Workspace, and now also Jump Cloud, helping to scale digital native companies and corporations towards their new technologies and better business solutions. Thank you for listening and don't forget uh, to join us and follow us with Jump Cloud on LinkedIn or other platforms. Bye bye.